Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to introduce to you tonight and to very warmly welcome Lieutenant Colonel Robert N. White of the United States Air Force, who is going to de deliver this lecture on the X-15 research program. I think we all feel it's a very great honor for the test pilot group of the Aeronautical Society to have as our speaker tonight one of the world's most distinguished aviators. Well, Bob White was born on the 6th of July 24 in New York City and he graduated in electrical engineering from New York University in 1951. He's currently stationed with 36 tactical fighter wing in Germany. Uh, this appointment has been since 1963 and he commands the 53rd Tactical Fighter Squadron operating F-105s. He entered the uh, United States Air Force in uh, 42 and was awarded eight air medals. He flew P-51 Mustangs and did over 52 missions in Europe, being stationed at Cambridge at the time. He was eventually shot down over Munich and spent the rest of the war as a prisoner of war. Uh, in 1945, he left the Air Force, but returned back in 1951. He flew a jet aircraft in Korea, and then went to the Air Force Aerospace Pilot School and flew a variety of aircraft, including the F-86, the F-89, the F-102, and the F-105 experimental aircraft. <coughs> he, as you probably all know, is the principal pilot of the X-15 and was chief experimental test pilot of the United States Air Force Flight Test Center from 1955 to 1963. In 1958, he was assigned to the X-15 and first flew it in 1960 achieving the following records. The height record of 136,900 feet. Speed record in 1961 of 4,093 miles per hour. In July 1962, the height record was increased to 314,750 feet. And for this he was presented with astronauts' wings, the only pilot of a wing squadron to hold this award. Well, it gives me great pleasure now to introduce Colonel White to give this lecture. Thank you very much, Bill. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to begin by expressing my appreciation to the Society, specifically the Test Pilots Group, and specifically to Bill Bedford, for the invitation. It's a distinct pleasure and certainly an honor for me to be here. My discussion uh, this evening, of course, will center on the X-15 research airplane, uh, some of the uh, essential items that we uncovered in our development flying of the program, some characteristics of the airplane. I would hope I can go into this in sufficient detail, of course, being away from the program for a good time now. I have lost some of the great intimacy that I had in the past, but I think not completely so. 
at least not enough so to uh, deny me an opportunity to present you with some decent information. I'd like to begin by letting you take a look at the airplane and indicating some of the uh, salient features. Of course, here it is. I'm sure that many of you are familiar in many ways with some of the details. But the airplane was designed, of course, for a maximum velocity of 6,000 feet per second, which we did uh, achieve and surpass uh, to some degree. And the design altitude in the original specification was for 250,000 feet. The criteria in the very beginning was to look at uh, an air vehicle that could take us to this speed, interested in Mach numbers in the order of six, and to altitudes that would essentially uh, get us far enough out of the atmosphere so we could make some in initial investigations in the space environment as well as at hypersonic velocities. Of course, associated with these uh, performance parameters, we expected structural temperatures uh, to reach approximately 1,200 degrees Fahrenheit. And this dictated the construction that was used in the airplane, primarily an Inconel X steel for the primary structure with titanium as the primary substructure. The airplane weight, as you see here, uh, actually approximately 34,000 pounds uh, when it is launched into flight and landing slightly over 14,000 pounds. The difference between the launch and landing weight, primarily the fuel that was carried on board that would supply the rocket engine that was used uh, in the program. Approximately 20,000 pounds of propellants were provided to give us a engine burning time at maximum thrust of approximately 86 seconds. 20,000 pounds of propellants in 86 seconds. Quite, uh, quite a hungry engine, but certainly the only way at that particular time we could develop the velocities and achieve the performance we were looking for. The fuels that we use, anhydrous ammonia and liquid oxygen, the oxidizer for the fuel. A unique uh, feature in the development of the program was the rocket engine power plant. Now, of course, this, these uh, things had been used before in some of the earlier research airplanes in the United States. But in this particular case, we were trying to provide a rocket engine that had a throttling capability. And in fact, this was provided. And the throttling capability, as you see here, up to its maximum thrust of approximately 58,000 pounds, to be more exact. And we're now able to throttle it to uh, oh, something just over 20,000 pounds. So the throttling capability was improved over the figures you see here. Now, for the uh, configuration, uh, the thing that strikes your eye first, of course, is the cruciform uh, tail, having a rudder below the fuselage, almost equal in area to that above. Now, of course, this was provided because of information that we had derived in earlier programs and from the wind tunnel studies that went into this effort that indicated the loss in directional stability as we go on up in the Mach number area. Uh, the wedge shape of the tail was the best compromise in achieving uh, the, the highest possible directional stability at the high Mach numbers. Uh, compared with 
a minimum efficiency at low speed, but of course low speed is not the area we were particularly interested in investigating, and we didn't worry about the penalties we paid at that end. When the airplane uh, was ready for rollout and progression to the flight stage, the engine, what we call the XLR-99 engine, was not yet ready for the machine. So we used a pair of uh, smaller rocket engines that had been used in the X-1 research airplane. This provided us an opportunity to at least get on with some of the flying and perhaps probe into some of the early problems that always beset uh, the early flight stages. And that's indicated in the uh, lower drawing. These two engines mounted one above the other developed approximately 16,000 pounds of thrust. So you can see that we were not going to uh, get much performance capability, but again, it allowed us the opportunity to get the airplane into flight and start uncovering some of the defects and deficiencies we were certain would show up in the systems, and these things would then allow us to get on with it when we got the large engine. Uh, now you notice the lower rudder in this particular picture, we can see more clearly that the entire surface above the hinge line here and below here would move for the directional control. In addition, above the hinge line in this flap area and here, we had split flap type speed brakes. Of course, the main landing gear is a, a dual nose wheel, dual tire nose wheel, and the main landing gear, back here at the end of the airplane, a pair of steel skids or skis. When this landing gear was extended, of course, it was not sufficiently low so that this area would uh, clear the ground. We provided then that we would jettison this section of the rudder just prior to landing. And of course, installed in this section of the rudder was a parachute that allowed us to recover uh, the lower rudder section for reuse again. The uh, philosophy behind using the skis or the skids was that the airplane would be used only on the dry lake beds that are available in the southwestern United States, specifically in California and Nevada, where we operated the airplane. So we were able to do away then with the, uh, the requirement to have uh, wheels in the back end and, of course, provide compartments that would house a rather large landing gear and uh, also take away some of the requirements to properly shield it from the heat that we would see in the future. And the nose of the airplane in the lower section for the earlier flights, when we would not achieve very high speeds, we had the standard test uh, uh, nose boom with the static and total pressure sources available to us there and the, uh, and the uh, vanes that would give us uh, pitch and side slip information. But as we proceeded on and would progress into the high-speed areas, this was unsatisfactory because of the heat that would develop. They certainly would be damaged. Uh, we then used a steel null-seeking ball nose. It was uh, cooled by nitrogen, and this uh, was designed to operate at very low dynamic pressures because we would achieve altitudes where the dynamic pressures would be down in the order of one pound per square foot. And the ball nose arrangement then with its null seeking would allow us to get uh, pitch, angle of attack, and side slip information. And this, of course, could be translated uh, for a presentation to the pilot or used in the systems necessary on board.
At the very outset, our research areas were interested, of course, in the aerodynamic and the structural heating information that we would derive. The aerodynamic qualities at Mach numbers that we had certainly not achieved in the past, and the structural heating, something new that we were going to see uh, because of flying at the speeds above Mach numbers of 3 and 4. Again, the hypersonic stability and control, just what information could we find out about the uh, particular shape that we were using and how it related to anything we thought about in the future. The control at low dynamic pressure, of course, once we started to leave most of the atmosphere behind, uh, the techniques we would use in control and what problems we might experience trying to control the uh, aircraft above the atmosphere. Of course, the piloting problems, were there going to be significant problems uh, flying the airplane at the higher altitudes, at the high speeds, and making the entry back into the atmosphere, which uh, presented itself as a possible uh, critical area in flight. The, the first four were the most important items as we saw them at the beginning of the program. Uh, later on, as we came closer to flight, we began to recognize that the last four were items that we were starting to take into very serious consideration. The landing, of course. Uh, the old story, until you accomplish this first landing, you're not quite sure of how it's going to work out. And particularly in our case, of course, because uh, during the course of a flight, you would expend all your propellants, uh, thrust would terminate, and for the last portions of the flight, you would essentially be a very high-speed glider. And falling uh, with a velocity vertically, something in the order of that that a rock does when you drop it from the top of a building. The aeromedical studies. Now, we were, we were deeply concerned about this much earlier, I, I, I have to admit. Uh, we were providing the pilot with all sorts of uh, protective devices in the cockpit because we were going to operating in extreme envir environments where his life would be in immediate danger if he was not provided the uh, oxygen and the physical body protection uh, that he needs. Simulation. Uh, how could we prepare for our missions as we, start, as we prepared to push into uh, new flight regimes, areas that were, as far as we were concerned, totally unexplored uh, and, and, and there was very little aerodynamic information available to us, only the, uh, the uh, wind tunnel information and, of course, the much earlier uh, computed data. And finally, flight control systems. This, of course, under rapidly changing conditions that we would experience in flight, the rapidly changing dynamic pressures, uh, altitudes, the heat problems, whether or not we would have serious uh, worries here. One of the well, here's the research mission. This gives you some idea of how we operated. Of course, the technique I think you're all familiar with that we have used in the United States in the past with the rocket airplanes is to carry it aloft on a modi uh, modified bomber airplane. It worked quite well with the X-1 and X-2 airplanes using the B-29 and B-50. And in this case, the B-52 bomber was used as the carrier vehicle. Of course, it did provide us a, an opportunity to uh, get the greatest possible performance. Our performance was predicated on the fact that would be, we would be starting from an altitude of 45,000 feet rather than making a ground takeoff and expending uh, the valuable fuel traversing the regions that we really weren't interested in. 
we carried the aircraft up along what we called our high range because there were stations along the range, ground stations, that would monitor the flight, receive the telemetered information, be able to pass this back to the pilot and provide assistance during the course of the flight if that was necessary. Uh, the airplane would launch some 200 miles from the recovery base at Edwards Air Force Base in California and then go on through its mission, as you see uh, simply indicated here, an exit, the ballistic portion of the flight when we're outside the atmosphere, the entry maneuver, and then finally the maneuvering for the landing on the dry lake bed at home. I mentioned earlier that the natural features of this country uh, did allow us to have many airfields available. The dry lakes along the way were available for use at the launch point in the event we had some engine malfunction that uh, made it necessary to land immediately after launch, or emergency lake beds that were spotted along the way in which we could recover in the event of some, some malfunction, particularly engine malfunction, that did not put enough energy into the system to allow us to reach our uh, intended destination. One of the primary areas of consideration and one that uh, gave us a, a, a great deal of interest in the program was this particular feature, the aerodynamic heating that we experienced. Uh, it resulted in a number of interesting factors, particularly for the pilots in certain cases, but here, uh, just in quite a pretty picture, I think, is some, something that indicates the magnitude of the temperatures over the airplane as we expected them. Of course, because of the uh, temperatures that we did get, and here you see a summary of some of the temperatures. I, we say maximum temperatures here, but in the time since I left the program, we have run uh, higher than these areas. But these indicate approximately the uh, magnitude of the maximum temperatures. Now, they didn't all occur on the same flight as indicated here, but are representative of temperatures achieved on a number of different flights. And in each one of these areas, they did result in some problems. The temperatures, as you see them, uh, gave us problems in the area of the canopy seal and the canopy glass, uh, here up in the nose gear, along the side fairings of the airplane, the leading edge of the airplane back in the uh, speed brake section. Right here is where one of the early problems showed up. Prior to the time the airplane made its very first flight when the liquid oxygen tanks were filled because of the contraction of the tank, which is located in this area, why we had buckling of the skin in this region. Well, they went ahead and put in one-eighth inch expansion joints uh, they felt would take care of this. And it did for a while until a flight to this Mach number, and that was our maximum Mach number on this particular flight. We hadn't reached that point before or exceeded it. And on that flight, we experienced a number of permanent buckles in the skin. And it uh, was quite easy for us to see how it happened when we thought about it. Uh, since we were only trying to take one step forward and reach the order of this Mach number, the pilot shut down the engine prior to the time all the fuel was used. When he reached this speed, flight terminated. Uh, rather, the engine operation terminated. Well, here we still had liquid oxygen in the fuel tanks at approximately minus 260 degrees Fahrenheit. 
And during the course of the flights of that Mach number, we began to heat up this surface, as you see here, in the order of 590 degrees Fahrenheit, through temperatures of 480 degrees. And of course, this caused uh, a, a gradient across the skin to give us this, this buckling. Now, it wasn't a great concern to us uh, after we saw it, because the skin in this area along the side fairings of the airplane were only designed to carry uh, local air loads. They weren't primary uh, supporting structure. But again, expansion joints were added all along the way, and we had over one inch of expansion joint provided through this entire area to take care of this problem. Apparently something the railroad men figured out a long time ago, but we had to learn it in our experience on this airplane. What we did as a, for a gross indication of temperature was to use a temp, uh, temperature-sensitive paint. And here you can see you're looking at the underside of the airplane, one wing. Uh, this is frost along the liquid oxygen tank. This is taken shortly after landing. And the fence you see on top of the wing is in reality the uh, top of the vertical tail. And here you can see, because of the changes in the color patterns, some of the different temperatures that occurred. In the light areas, the temperatures were in the order of 250 degrees Fahrenheit. And in the darker areas, they were over 400 degrees Fahrenheit. And of course, the sink, the heat sink, is clearly evident here, as you see the, the uh, skin, the internal structure of the airplane. There were areas where, in the dark spots, the we can see where the heat moved along in some areas right near the leading edge of the wing. The temperatures were higher than 800 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, right along the leading edge of the wing, we had expansion slots in the leading edge heat sink. You can actually see the small slots, which I'll show you in greater detail in a moment. And these uh, areas here showed the greatest heat and immediately adjacent to some of these expansion slots because of the local airflow through them. Uh, we developed local high heat points of over 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit and areas immediately adjacent, the temperature moving rapidly down to uh, the order of six to 700 degrees. Well, with this kind of temperature gradient, we ran into some problems. We started getting wing skin buckling. And we can see that right here. Inter-rivet buckling began occurring, and of course we were quite happy that uh, we weren't uh, going up to, say, Mach 6 on this flight because uh, we're not quite sure whether or not the top wing panels would have stayed uh, with the airplane. We went ahead then and put a modified the expansion joint by putting a, a strap or shielding it so that the, uh, the airflow characteristics right around this slot would not produce the local hot spots and result in this type of heat damage. We felt quite satisfied with that. And then here is a close-up when at a flight at Mach 6, and uh, apparently the fix was not quite sufficient because of the uh, expansion at the uh, slot, why it just completely damaged this uh, uh, strap. We actually used the same technique technique again, but we, they uh, went into it just a little bit more thoroughly to provide greater structural integrity here, something that would stand up under the expansion and contraction as uh, the airplane was heated and cooled. Another re region that uh, was interesting, let me tell you what you're looking at here. 
uh, you're looking up into the nose wheel well and at an aft bulkhead. And of course, here's some aluminum tubing, aluminum lines, part of uh, instrumentation. But there was a small leak, a small crack in the nose gear door. It wasn't completely sealed. And the air entering that area, high temperature air, just completely burned through the aluminum tubing quite, quite easily. Uh, we think with hypersonic vehicles, any hypersonic vehicles that come along in the, in the uh, future, perhaps the uh, supersonic airliners, if they uh, get up in the order of Mach 3 and operate here for sustained periods of time, will easily run into problems like this until it's completely understood and uh, we can ensure that we're sealing off all these uh, possible openings in the airplane, the inspection doors and uh, fittings and and landing gear uh, doors and so forth. This is something that could very easily happen. So it was inter interesting to us when it occurred the first time. Another area, now these things, of course, were all uh, discovered after we got on the ground. There were no catastrophic consequences in flight, uh, but there was one area that uh, was tremendously interesting to the pilot because it happened right before his eyes. and. Uh, this is the windshield that was damaged. Now, originally in the program, they had a soda-lime tempered glass uh, that we were to use. But prior to the time we reached the higher speeds and the higher temperatures uh, we were waiting to expect, uh, tests had been run on the glass, and they indicated that it would not stand up structurally above 750 degrees Fahrenheit. And our studies indicated that we would reach temperatures around the canopy and in the vicinity of the glass in the order of 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So we very quickly uh, had to come up with something else, and they had an aluminosilicate compound, provided us with a glass, and this uh, glass seemed to be the answer for us because it would take temperatures up to 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It would actually reduce the gradient across the glass by 70% of what uh, this old glass could do. Well, this all occurred before this, and uh, just to indicate that with all the good work we tried to do and as careful as we were on the program, here's an example of human error. One of the old windshields was inadvertently put in this particular airplane because we were quite concerned to see this happen and, and wondered why, because the magnitude of the temperature was approximately 900 degrees, uh, but then we found out the reason, just as a human error. Uh, resulted in this. Of course, they assured me that after this occurred, because it was one of my particular flights, that uh, no concern, because it would never happen again. Then I went out on a flight to Mach 604, and this happened. However, in this case, uh, we checked, and it was the, the proper glass, or the glass that we thought was best to serve our purpose. But in this case, what happened is the windshield frame went through its expansion and contraction with the heating and the cooling. And as it cooled down, the frame buckled and imparted loads to the glass that shattered the, the windshield. Now, fortunately, in each one of this case, and this one particularly, it only happened on one side. So the pilot did have vision through the other windscreen and was able to manage landing the aircraft without any difficulty. Incidentally, in the windscreen, it's a double-paneled windscreen, and in each case, it was the outer panel that shattered, and 
also in both cases, uh, the glass remained with the airplane. So although it was a startling thing to see happen at first, because it happened instantaneously, it uh, managed to stay with it. I mentioned earlier that uh, we were concerned about simulation, what we would do to prepare the pilot uh, for his work in the, in the airplane. And what we did was go ahead and use a simulator, a, a cockpit with all the instruments, of course, as uh, you might expect, and we completely rigged up the actual airplane control system, powered it hydraulically, and had it tied into a six degree of freedom analog computer. Now we used a digital computer to uh, run out some of the temperature uh, information, some of the temperature predictions, and of course we studied these in a survey. But here the pilot was able to get in and do simulation work, work on the uh, flight control simulator, and actually try and get the best information he could, and we covered a number of areas. When we prepared for a flight, we were going to a certain altitude or velocity, or we were going to do certain stability and control tests on the airplane, we would, of course, go ahead and work with the normal profile. Now, this would give the pilot all his cues, and it would also allow us to do our performance prediction work so that we uh, knew at what point, if we had an emergency, where we might land as we traverse this high range en route to our home base. Of course, that came in with the engine failures. We uh, let the, uh, the people running the simulator for us uh, just arbitrarily go ahead and indicate engine failure whenever they thought it might be interesting. We practiced this then, our inertial platform failures. We had a, an inertial system, an all-attitude reference system for the pilot to fly, and of course with accelerometers and all axes, a simple matter of doing integrations, and this provided us with velocity and altitude and rate of climb data. But without these, of course, uh, we might have some problems, so we simulated failures of that system the flow direction sensor failures. If we uh, were without angle of attack and side slip information, very important parameters to us in flight, uh, how we might manage. Then, of course, radar and or radio. Along the high range, they were tracking us with radar. They were getting telemetered information, and they would provide uh, information to the pilot to, uh, as, as to his position. Now, in the event that these things failed, we wanted to be able to do this mission completely from the cockpit. In other words, we did not want to conduct these flights with dependence on the ground stations or any outside help. Now, these factors, of course, were important, and they were provided as an assist, but as an assist only. We still felt that it should be, uh, the mission should be able to be done completely and successfully without this assistance. Stability and variation. Of course, stability and control was a very vital concern. And during our work in the simulator, it was quite easy for us with our uh, analog uh, to go ahead and vary the stability, uh, to take the most pessimistic combination of uh, errors we thought might exist in the stability derivatives as they were predicted and find out what kind of situation we have. Suppose at this Mach number, a critical item might be some certain stability parameter. Well, they're predicting this level of stability, let's worsen it, or let's change cross derivatives and see what we come up with. In this way, then, the pilot was able to, uh, to do a very 
great amount of study and preparation for the flight in the event we ran into unforeseen situations. And of course, the stability augmentation, which for us consisted of rate dampers in all three axes. Uh, there were certain critical failures that could occur uh, depending where we were in flight. I'll point these out later. And we did practice what action we might take in the event we lost uh, rate damping. I mentioned the ground station. Let me just let you take a quick look at this. Of course, the people on the ground uh, prior to launch as well as during the launch had a number of things to perform that were an assist to us. I might mention, too, that in our uh, program, we had an X-15 pilot in the ground station who was the only man who was in radio contact, other than the airborne people, but the only man from the ground station who was in airborne uh, in communication with the X-15 pilot. We had the engineers that were monitoring consoles, getting information back, running through the checklist as we went down through a uh, a detailed pre-launch preparation, much the same as uh, they do when they prepare for a, pardon the expression, missile launch. But a pilot, the pilot, the X-15 pilot, was the only one who would communicate information from these people monitoring th these things to the pilot. We wanted to make absolutely certain that there wouldn't be any confusing information, and the pilot, we felt, knew best what this, uh, the uh, man situation was in the air. Of course, they'd provide positioning advice to the B-52 as he uh, moved up the range and prepared to um, make the launch point. Of course, the other factors you see are all these things to the X-15 pilot as a backup to uh, what he was able to see and determine for himself. They would monitor stability and control. We could pulse the airplane, kick it about, and they could watch and see what kind of damping was going on. They'd uh, take a look, and if there were indications of divergence, uh, they, we could pass this information to the pilot. This, this was being monitored constantly in real time. The physiological data. We uh, started out and gradually gained full acceptance from the pilots on the, the needs for physiological monitoring. Uh, we did this early in the program by looking at the uh, the pressure in the pilot's uh, helmet, in the pressure suit, in the suit itself, because they were separate. We had uh, oxygen and the oxygen pressure in the helmet and nitrogen in the uh, pressure suit itself. Uh, we also looked at the uh, respiration rate. We recorded temperature on board the airplane and we recorded heartbeat. And as the program developed, we refine some of these things so that they could be transmitted and monitored in real time. And as the program progressed, we were actually monitoring uh, clinically readable electrocardiograms while the flight was in progress. So this was quite interesting, we thought. Energy management assistance, again, if uh, the engine failed at some particular point, they could immediately, on the ground for us, determine where the best place for us uh, would be to go. For instance, I might determine rather quickly that I should turn around and return to a landing field somewhere behind me. Uh, they might be able to verify that, in, they would verify that information for me or tell me to proceed to the one ahead of me. They had an instant picture of how much energy was in the system and uh, the answers were constantly available, again, in real time as to where we might go in the event of a problem. And then, of course, if it ever came down to that, they could go ahead and direct this type operation.
I'd like to uh, go in a little bit now and talk about some of the things uh, the pilot looks at directly. This is only to indicate to you that the cockpit of the, the airplane <clears throat> was not really a radical departure from the cockpit uh, any pilot is used to looking at. Of course, the uh, presentations were uh, had certain unique items associated with them to provide us information we were looking for because of the flight regime we were operating in. We did have a number of unusual things, however, though. We had three control sticks in the airplane at the beginning of the program. We did provide aerodynamic control through the center stick, a conventional uh, mode, and a side stick. Now, we felt that this side stick was necessary uh, because of the high accelerations the pilot would experience in flight during the uh, entry maneuver to the atmosphere particularly when he would be subject to over 5 G's in the normal direction and 4 G's longitudinally. So we felt it was important there, particularly in the event we had uh, control problems, we did not want inadvertent inputs into the control system. So the side-mounted controller would allow the pilot, we believe, more precise control in the event of that situation. Now, we did not want to remove the center stick until we determined the feasibility of being able to land the airplane with this small side stick controller. So that was left in. Then for reaction controls, we had small rockets in the nose and the wingtip of the airplane to control the airplane's attitude outside the atmosphere. And that was initially provided by a small controller on the left side of the airplane. Uh, the ballistic controls I talked about, again, with that small controller on the left side of the, the cockpit, the pilot merely controlled the flow of uh, hydrogen peroxide through the lines to the appropriate uh, rocket in the nose of the wings. We had a uh, combination of silver and stainless uh, steel screens that sat as the catalyst bed when the hydrogen peroxide poured over it and the chemical reaction resulted in uh, water vapor, oxygen, and intense heat, consequently steam, and by exhausting it through the appropriate uh, uh, rocket motor we were able to develop thrust and control the airplane as you see here. These factors we arrived at, again, it's the simulator devices, uh, and they worked out quite well for us with very minor adjustments once we started flying the airplane where we could check the uh, ballistic control system. Incidentally, with the airplane, we use very much the same system uh, in powering auxiliary, uh, the auxiliary power units. Uh, since we had a rocket, we have a rocket engine, uh, we don't have the uh, facility that we do with a jet engine or the reciprocating engine. There are no, there's no rotating machinery uh, which we can gear hydraulic pumps or electric generators to. So we went ahead and used auxiliary power units, nothing more than steam turbines, again using peroxide and a catalyst bed to provide us with superheated steam, impinging it on the impeller, and there was our prime mover for the hydraulic pumps and the generators. The primary stability and control problem we had concerned itself with the, the situation we would face on re-entering the atmosphere. And you can see here the 
at the very high angles of attack, uh, our studies showed that uh, we'd be running in uncontrollable regions. The airplane was excellent in the lower angle of attack region, but when we ran up to the very high angles of attack with the roll damper off, uh, this was the area we were concerned about. If we lost the roll damper, we would run into uncontrollable areas, and here it should, would give you an indication of the angles of attack we would be flying at the various Mach numbers, and we were running right through this region. Well, we became quite concerned about it, and before we started going to the higher altitudes, uh, we devoted a great deal of time and effort into what we could do in the simple event that you lost a roll damper, we're sitting at high altitude, and the entry required that you maintain a high angle of attack on the coming back in. Because by maintaining the high angle of attack, you avoided the boundary conditions that existed down at the bottom end, the dynamic pressure, uh, limitations on the airplane and the temperature limitations uh, that allowed us to re-enter. So we were quite concerned about this. Uh, what we had to do in the airplane was go to a redundant system of uh, rate dampers. Now redundancy turned out to be a prime factor in this program, uh, in the systems that existed in the airplane and what the uh, pilot needed for successful recovery. Perhaps some of you wouldn't completely agree with uh, our philosophy on that, but we felt that redundant systems in a research airplane went a very long way to providing us a high measure of success. Well, another thing we looked at was what would happen if we fly the airplane with the lower rudder removed. And we found that even though we lost the roll damping, with the lower rudder removed, we now had a vehicle that we could control at the higher angles of attack uh, through the re-entry maneuver. So we thought about this and, and felt that, well, perhaps uh, if you were uh, on a, a flight and you were sitting up at high altitude and all of a sudden lost your rate damping, uh, perhaps the easiest thing to do would be to get rid of the lower rudder and then you would be uh, in a much better position to control the air vehicle during re-entry. However, there was one factor we certainly couldn't overlook, and, the fact, and the, that was the reason that the thing was there to begin with, and that was to provide us a higher measure of directional stability. So we went ahead and looked at this, and on the top plot, we're showing CL beta the dihedral effect of the airplane, and down at the bottom, the CN beta the directional stability. At the uh, top end, the thing that was causing us all our problem when we lost the roll damper was this, an adverse dihedral effect with the lower rudder on. It uh, was giving us quite a fit. As soon as we uh, lost the roll damper, the airplane became quite uh, squirrelish and in roll. And as we tried to uh, use lateral control deflection proportional to bank angle while we're introducing yawing moments, and of course this was reinforcing the roll, and pretty soon the frequency would get to a point where the pilot would be on his ability to handle it. We even tried to adapt different control techniques. For instance, uh, we mechanized our side slip indicator, a needle, so that the pilot could use lateral control deflection proportional to side slip angle to try and keep the airplane in control. And here we're using the lateral control to take care of directional oscillations. But of course, again, the frequency was an important factor, and it varied enough that the pilot 
certainly it would get out of phase and, uh, and lose it. Well, we went ahead and with the rudder off, we got rid of this adverse dihedral effect and the airplane became quite pleasant to fly, even with the roll damper fail. But we went ahead and looked at what we gave up in directional stability. And we found that we had a much lower level of directional stability, but we thought it was worth a try. So subsequently, we went through a number of flight tests on the airplane to go ahead and find out if we really had what we <clears throat> believed to be the case here and if it was acceptable to have this, uh, what looked like a very low level of directional stability. And it turned out to be true. Uh, of course, we didn't have ailerons on the airplane, so we're, weren't going, we weren't going to be introducing the, uh, the uh, side slip because of the aileron deflections such as occurred in the X-2 airplane. And of course, the getting the large yaw angles there, the airplane diverged, and we did lose that airplane. But the problem was a little bit different here. Now to jump off into uh, another side of it, we uh, just to show you the escape system we had in the in the airplane at the uh, very beginning of the program. There was quite a bit of discussion and debate on what kind of a, an escape system we should have. A great deal of talk centered around a, an entire capsule system. Uh, this was used in an earlier vehicle, the X-2 airplane. But, uh, and looking at this thing real closely, uh, we determined that the a capsule would not be ready, fully tested, and, and uh, acceptable for the airplane until much later than the time the airplane would be ready for flight. So I went ahead and looked at an open escape system. And the combination of the seat and the pressure suit did provide, we felt, a, an adequate system for escape in the event that was necessary. Now the pressure suit that the pilot wears is an integral part of the escape system in that it provided blast and heat protection uh, for the pilot. We had telescoping uh, booms subsequently applied to the seat and uh, big folding arms that flipped out to provide stability for the seat. And the system was good from 80 knots at ground level to uh, its maximums of Mach 4 and 120,000 feet. Uh, we didn't envision the requirement to, uh, as much requirement for escape at the higher altitudes because by the time we got there, all our fuel was expended, so the, the fire and explosion hazard, of course, was considerably removed. And the limitations, obviously, on the Mach 4, the 120,000 feet, because if you try to escape much higher, you have the same reentry problem as the airplane, which means a lot of a lot of temperature, and it does get hot. Another item: the pressure suit. Uh, this is kind of an interesting device. Uh, very uncomfortable, I might add. Although it, this particular item uh, was certainly a wonderful garment, we did have. Uh, a system in the airplane. We pressurized the cockpit with nitrogen gas, I think something that would be unacceptable for the future and in any vehicle that you're going to use on a long-term long basis. Consequently, the pilot could never open up the face mask. It always had to be closed. So a seal uh, kept the nitrogen that also pressurized the suit away from the oxygen that was in the helmet, the oxygen that uh, the pilot used for breathing. 
It's rather significant, I thought, that after wearing this suit for a number of hours, and there was cooling air circulating through it, but nevertheless it did become very hot, and when you took the suit off, there were a number of uh, welts and strap marks all over your body. And that seemed to be quite appropriate because the manufacturer of this pressure suit uh, did this as a sideline, really. And uh, his primary existence for, his primary reason for existence in the business world was the manufacture of braziers and girdles. <laughs> Nevertheless, a very good device. It, uh, on several occasions, it did uh, provide the necessary protection for both Joe Walker uh, and the program and several flights of my own. Uh, we had cabin pressure failures uh, and the uh, pressure in the cabin, the altitude, went to just over 70,000 feet. And of course, without pressure protection up there, there's not, uh, not too much time available. I have uh, a short film that I'd like to show you. Uh, this is uh, more of a film, I think, that uh, would be interesting for public consumption. However, there are a number of items here that I can talk about and point out to you that you might find rather interesting. Uh, it's in color, and uh, it shows some sequences uh, in the X-15 operation and X-15 flight. Now, during the course of the film, and I'll indicate when it occurs, we have some uh, pictures that are taken from on board the X-15 airplane. There are cameras that were mounted behind the cockpit on top of the fuselage and looking rearward. So what you will see is the top part of the airplane, the tail of the airplane, and you'll be looking out toward the back end. Additionally, because of the way the, the, uh, the films were taken, you'll be seeing the things happen during that particular sequence, the pictures that were taken on board the X-15, at at least four times faster than they're occurring. So it will seem quite a bit speeded up. And although you know we have a fast machine, it certainly isn't as fast as it will look in that, in that film. And I'll indicate when that, when that particular sequence does occur so it might have a little bit more meaning to you. It certainly is a marvelous auditorium, Bill. I hear this, we begin by showing a, a uh, run of the engine on a test stand at uh, Edwards Air Force Base in California. You will see the flame pattern change, uh, which shows the throttling that, that occurs with the engine. Quite a good feature, especially uh, early in the program. There you see the flame pattern change, and then finally it will cut off. And then here comes our hero walking out of his uh, dressing van. But they had the, uh, uh, quite a nice van that they could pull down in position very close to the airplane. So it was here that you were able to dress and get suited up and, and run the checks on the, uh, on the pressure suit and all the devices and be ready to go at the, just about the time the pilot was ready to enter the cockpit. Uh, in this uh, particular situation, a little bit different from the, our earlier days with the X-1 and X-2, there the research airplane was carried in the bomb bay and the pilot was able to get into his aircraft uh, while he was in flight.
But here, since we're being carried under the right wing of the airplane, you're in the cockpit, they close it down, and you're sealed in, and uh, very often you'll sit there for one hour, perhaps two hours. I've been in the thing for three hours before they started engines on the B-52. Any local little problems or that they have, you sit and wait. You develop great patience. <laughs> Here you can see what it looks like, and uh, it's interesting to note that if you're curious about it, that you can eject while on the ground. Let's say during the takeoff there was some uh, real emergency and you had to escape. The cockpit being forward of the leading edge of the B-52 wing would allow exactly that. You could separate from the X-15 uh, while still attached. And there you see in the flap system the cutout to allow the upper vertical stabilizer and rudder of the X-15 to fit neatly in position. Now at uh, Edwards, we do have a long runway in addition to the uh, very wonderful lake bed. And without flaps in the takeoff and a hot day, the takeoff roll was quite long. But once he got airborne, why, it was uh, almost spectacular. It certainly was for me sitting out in my seat. <laughs> I've kidded some of the bomber pilots that I've flown with, and Major Campbell, compatriot of mine, is sitting back there, who has flown in the B-52 and, and helped launch me that the, uh, I always consider the most dangerous part of the flight riding with the bomber pilots, but <laughs> I'm happy that they took this good-naturedly. Of course, as we're going on up the high range, uh, we're going through the, all the uh, preparations for the flight. We're uh, uh, getting systems activated, getting the hydraulics on, the uh, electric systems, we're testing the jettison system on the airplane, then you be, get to the point where you're pressurizing the propellant tanks, and then that happens. Uh, as, as, it, as it looks, it's a rather abrupt uh, drop from the wing. You achieve zero G, but you, uh, you're back within two seconds. You light off the engine, and you're on your way. I'll talk more about the handling qualities of the airplane at the completion of the film, but uh, we can just look at this. Now, we go up in approximately a 30 to 35-degree climb angle. It depends on what we're trying to achieve on that particular mission. Again, uh, 86 seconds if you're going to use all the propellants, 86 seconds after the engine is started while the, it stops. Now here you're looking on board, and you can see the motions back at the uh, stabilizer, at the rudder, and you can see the contrail in a rather steep angle going uphill. Again, this is much faster than real time, so if you're aware of that illusion, it shouldn't bother you. As we go over the top, you know, when the newsman asks me these questions about what's it like to go so fast, I have to tell them that it's not the speed that you're impressed with, it's the altitude. And, of course, I had a much greater field of view, but uh, you could quite distinctly make out curvature of the earth, and it was a very impressive sight. And here, then, finally, coming down back through the, uh, the entry maneuver, there were speed brakes open, now closed, and then we'll go around into a rather sharp turn as we try to negotiate recovering on the on the lake bed. Very shortly uh, switch back over to pictures taken external to the airplane and it will show the approach and, and landing. And here we come in uh, over the lake bed. The pilot flies around at 300 knots until he begins the flare then uh, puts down the flaps and the landing gear is aiming for his touchdown point. 
There we touch down. Now watch the nose follow through rather abruptly. And the slide out averages between five and 6,000 feet. Now the reason, of course, that the nose comes down quite sharply, you can make a nice smooth touchdown on the main skids, but you see where they are. They're sitting back well after the CG. We're normally used to having uh, our landing gear somewhere around the center of gravity. But as far back as they are, why even full aft stick, full leading edge down on the stabilizer, will not develop sufficient elevator power to allow you to hold the nose off. So once the main skids do touch, the nose gear follows with a very definite impact. After the first time, of course, you're used to it, and it uh, doesn't make any difference. Uh, the rest of this is uh, really, I think, what the, uh, the public information people like to have, but uh, not very significant. Now, you see that fine fellow in the orange suit, and he's got a portable cooling system with him. And as soon as I get out of the airplane and unplug the airplane system, he plugs that into my pressure suit to allow cooling air to circulate. And it's quite necessary. Now, that's my son. And uh, I do like to see this film once in a while, because ever since we've been in the section of Germany we where we are, I haven't seen him squint against the sun uh, like he does there. <laughs> what I'd like to do is uh, make some quotes here from something I have written down on some of the, uh, some of the handling qualities, just to make sure I haven't missed a, uh, some of these factors that uh, I'm sure some of you would be interested in. Of course, we uh, started to draw many conclusions during the course of the program, uh, but we, we've held off until uh, just recently, and they must, they're working on this now, as to translating these things into handling quality specifications. Of course, back home, I, I'm certain you have the same thing here. I know you do. The handling quality specifications that uh, define what we should have in a vehicle. And of course, with this experience, we can be more specific with, uh, with exact data and pilots' opinions on what we should have in hypersonic and high-altitude vehicles. Now, you saw the, the launch. We'll talk about some of the handling qualities. You saw the launch in the film when the X-15 comes off the uh, B-52. This is not a complete surprise to the pilot because the X-15 pilot is the one who initiates this. It can be done either way. And early in the program, we let the B-52 pilot count down and drop you off. Later on, when the very last stages of engine operation prior to light off were extremely critical, the X-15 pilot himself would flip the toggle switch that would allow you to drop away. Now you saw the departure from the B-52 pylon is rather sudden, yielding about zero G, and there was a sharp roll off to the right. But this is corrected uh, immediately upon leaving the B-52 flow field. The pilot lights the engine and is on his way. All right, immediately after the launch, we fire up the engine and the climb begins. Okay, we'll assume for a moment that uh, we have a long delay before engine ignition, and this has occurred on several flights. The pilot can glide at an eight-degree angle of attack, which is near the best lift-drag ratio for glide, approximately 240 knots in this case, with the airplane fully loaded. The airplane responds very well and is completely free of buffet. If the angle of attack is increased to 10 degrees, a very mild buffet, a mild buffet onset is immediately detected, and this allows the pilot to, to, to make corrections well in advance of any stall condition. So we say that the aerodynamic qualities then at 45,000 feet and at 0.8 Mach number, and these are the launch conditions, and at maximum weight are considered excellent. 
Well, very quickly after the engine light off, we attain supersonic speed. We rotate to a 10 degree angle of attack and maintain this 10 degrees until we have the climb out pitch angle that we're desi desiring on a particular flight, and that's dictated by the mission requirement. Buffett is completely absent when you get above Mach 1. And there's a mild trim down, a nose down trim change between 1.1 and 1.4, but we go through this region so rapidly you don't even notice it. Right, after initial rotation at the 10 degree angle of attack, we maintain a constant pitch angle, and this is varied anywhere from uh, 30 to near 40 degrees. We establish that, maintain it to burnout, and the acceleration just prior to burnout reaches along the longitudinal axis reaches approximately 4G, just about 4Gs. Now this is chest to back, and this is quite sufficient to hold you firmly in your seat. You find that your breathing becomes a little more shallow, but it doesn't any in any way impair your ability to manage your tasks. Uh, I've tried to take my head away from the headrest at 4G, and it's impossible. I don't have that strong a neck. I think it is a physical impossibility. Well, then, from engine burnout until the re-entry, the aircraft follows this ballistic trajectory. Of course, two, two unique features here, the weightlessness we experience by the pilot, and that occurs for a period of about two minutes. Rather limited uh, in view of the fact that we have had orbiting uh, people who've experienced this weightless condition for a significant period of time, and of course their experience gives us the valid information there. And of course the requirement that reaction controls be used since the dynamic pressures have decreased to a minimum of one pound per square foot at the highest altitude. And then we follow the, with the uh, re-entry maneuver which terminates when the aircraft rotates the level flight after experiencing from the high end about uh, 5.6 normal G, uh, 4G back to chest, and we come level at uh, 70,000 feet, and the peak Q, or dynamic pressure, usually is in excess of 1,600 pounds per square foot. Uh, the exit profile, this is particularly pleasing to the pilot. The aircraft is very stable, and all the damping is adequate, even with the rolling yaw dampers failed during this part of the flight. The longitudinal G level is back chest, back, chest to back, while of course certainly being noted by the, by the pilot, hasn't been high enough, in our opinion, to impair our ability to perform the essential tasks. <clears throat> On all the flights, thrust termination produced no uh, transient aircraft motion due to thrust misalignment. So we wondered about this initially, but no problem whatsoever. Thrust termination is very sharp and merely alleviates the longitudinal G and upsets the aircraft not one, one bit. After engine burnout, we trim the stabilizer to maintain zero degrees angle of attack. Uh, this change in trim is usually complete at about 160,000 feet on the way up. And the Q, the dynamic pressure, is decreased to less than 26 PSF by this time. Now, you can note the decay in response to the aerodynamic control very easily. And, of course, early in the program, we had a separate controller for reaction control. Why? We went ahead and immediately used the reaction control. We didn't need any other cues except sensing the decay in the aerodynamic control. Later on, we incorporated uh, the reaction control along with the aerodynamic control in the same control stick. Why go through a two-handed operation? We changed it over and we uh, had it so that it phased in automatically. 
and you could go ahead and use that controls and it made no difference as you went through a rapid dynamic pressure change. We thought the controls were extremely effective and we were developing the accelerations that we wanted in all axes and we're quite pleased with it. We didn't have to do uh, very much changing there at all. At first the response in pitch was a little bit more, uh, more than desired, but as soon as the pilot had a few experiences, there was no problem at all. We were able to adequately damp out any of the longitudinal oscillations. Zero G, uh, an interesting phenomena, again only slightly over two minutes, but uh, it had notice, no noticeable effect on the pilot. The pages on your notepad floated up, hanging, looking straight up in the air, but uh, that was about the most interesting thing apart about zero G. No problem at all. The re-entry, of course, is the thing that was most interesting from the pilot standpoint. Now, during this course of the flight on the way up after engine burnout, this is where we were doing our airplane upsets and so forth, but uh, this is not particularly pertinent to uh, the other handling uh, quality opinions. Uh, the re-entry, of course, is flown at the relatively higher angles of attack. I indicated that it was necessary to maintain the high angles of attack on the entry to stay away from the boundary condition that existed at the lower end. When flying at the lower altitudes in the order of 100,000 feet or so, which we did initially, we could elevate the angle of attack, fail dampers, kick the airplane about, and make determinations on how a good or poor it might be. But in that case, if we started to lose the airplane, uh, we had a diverging situation coming up. It was easy at that altitude to reduce the angle of attack, get back into the good flying area, and then come down and recover. But again, once at the very high end, we had to maintain the high angle of attack. So that's why the, uh, the concern over the things we talked about earlier. Okay, but on the re-entry, of course, we're coming down again. We have the rapidly changing conditions of dynamic pressure, the temperature, the velocity, and all the changes in the aircraft, the uh, stability and responses. And you actually begin that maneuver as the airplane passes through about uh, 180,000 feet on the way down. You trim the stabilizer, you just trim the stabilizer to some value that should maintain re-entry re normal G as the uh, dynamic pressure increases. Prior to that time, we use the reaction control to establish the angle of attack that we want to maintain on the entry. And then, of course, use the trim control to get the stabilizer in its proper position to take care of the, uh, the situation as dynamic pressure increases. Uh, on, the, on the entry, we have a side slip oscillation that develops. It's uh, small in magnitude, just a few degrees. It's quite high in frequency, but since it's low enough in, uh, in magnitude, we've essentially disregarded it. And uh, we've never had the dampers fail in this situation. We've never felt like we ought to fail them intentionally when that's happening, but it hasn't been of concern to us. And as a matter of fact, with the dampers off in our simulation work and all the information we do have, it shouldn't be it, it, it will damp. It's, not a, it's a converging situation. Uh, several control features that are common on every flight uh, we'll talk about before we, I get to the landing phase. The speed brakes have been used throughout this, the speed and altitude range, under thrust and after engine shutdown, and except for incremental use in the landing pattern, they've always been extended to full deflection and symmetrically, that is the equal deflection with the brakes above and below the fuselage, and there is a capability for deflecting either the upper or lower brakes, and they have done work in this since I've left. But up to that time, we, that aside from a very mild trim change, there were no undesirable aircraft motions at all, and uh, the, the speed brakes in the airplane are extremely effective. 
There has never been a report of Buffett due to speed brake deflection on any flight. The lateral deflection of the airplane has been affected by the differential deflection of the horizontal stabilizer. That's what we so-called rolling tail. Since we have no ailerons or spoilers, no device on the wing for uh, roll, aerodynamic roll control. We've considered it excellent. Uh, there's been no undesirable aircraft motions uh, coupled in any axis because of lateral control deflection. Of course, it's true that inertial coupling is a factor under certain conditions of dynamic pressure, angle of attack, and rolling velocity. And the, but we've made no attempt in the program to try and do any verification of what the roll coupling might be on this airplane. We feel that there's enough information there, and uh, it has never been a part of the things that we were looking for. Uh, they may, may be getting to some of that now if they have room for it, but we've, we felt all the other things we had to do were of much more significance and uh, we didn't do, bother doing any investigation on it. The stability augmentation system, of course, as I mentioned, provides rate damping about all the axes. It's had axes, has had significant effect on pilot opinion. We used moderate gains on the axis early in the, on the uh, dampers early in the program, and then uh, as we started to get above 3.5, we all expressed opinion for much higher gains. We seem to like, like a tighter airplane, and uh, tell you why in a moment. But our impressions were quite quite favorable. Uh, of course, without the roll damper, uh, we were in serious trouble, uh, as we discussed, and uh, it didn't, the rest of the damping system didn't matter. We talked about our, our control problem with the uh, lower rudder on. We've since tested with it off. We provided backup roll dampers to stay, so that we could stay away they, from a very critical situation. Longitudinal controllability. Uh, the Ames Research Center at NASA did a study on uh, the pilots' opinions on, on the uh, longitudinal damping and how we felt about it, and our opinions in the X-15 matched that very well. So uh, there was nothing unique about that. What, what you feel about, uh, as a pilot about the, the longitudinal damping, why well, it, it turned out to be quite good here. Now, the side control stick, of course, we, that had a lot of critical uh, analysis with it because we were depart departing from a conventional control. But as we got experience using the side stick, uh, everything that we felt was controversial was found to be quite satisfactory about it. All the pilots agreed to its utility at high acceleration. And uh, we had one comment about the location of the control. Some people, depending on the length of their arm, uh, would complain about just where it fit when they put their arm down. So we changed the, or provided a a changing position. They could preset it prior to flight to suit a particular pilot. It had five different uh, positions you could sit it in, so that made pilots very happy. And throughout the entire program, it was rather nice working with this machine. It wasn't something we were worrying about putting into production. So as we felt we needed changes in displays, controls, switches, we said, this is what we want, and it was wonderful. They did it. So the pilot had a cockpit that, that was exactly the way he, he liked it. And surprisingly, of the, the pilots that were flying the airplane, we generally had unanimous, unanimous agreement when we wanted changes or other indications in display systems. It was quite delightful. So we considered the control desirable. And then as we progressed in the program, uh, we ended up using the side stick control completely from launch right through to the landing. It turned out to be quite a, quite a fine thing. 
think it's important to say that the, the flight control system is excellent. I will say that in a minute, I believe. Okay, we finally get to the landing. Well, this area, of course, received a great deal of consideration in the beginning. There was a lot of uh, concern and attention about it until it finally developed into being a very routine operation based on the experience and the procedures and techniques that we began to develop and employ. Uh, prior to the program and during the X-15 program, we, had, we, used, uh, we gave ourselves the benefit of landing simulation by using a F-104 airplane. We had, with predetermined settings of the lift and drag devices, uh, devices and the engine thrust, why we could match the lift-drag ratio to that of the X-15. So pilots then were able to fly their simulated uh, flame-out patterns and establish the geographic checkpoints and the key altitudes around the pattern. And of course, then become familiar with the position and timing required in the pattern by the low lift-drag ratio. So during the entire course of the program, and right up to this very minute, the pilots are using the 104, and they use it on flights prior to their X-15 flight to actually practice for the X-15 landing. And as a matter of fact, on my very first X-15 landing, I actually felt as if I had been there before, because the 104 provided an excellent tool for us. Of course, there's a wide range of conditions that exist uh, from the altitude at the high key point to the lateral dispersion from the touchdown point. But this uh, all indicates a flexibility that the pilot has in maneuvering to a designated touchdown point. Now, we normally fly the airplane at 300 knots through the flame-out pattern. Ideally, it's nice if you start at uh, about 26 to 30,000 feet above the surface, and 1360 brings you in. But uh, the control, the control system in the airplane is absolutely superb. It's one of the finest control systems I've had uh, the pleasure to use. Of course, we had a research airplane. They paid a great deal of attention to it, and it is a superb control system. And down at this low speed end, uh, it was absolutely marvelous. The airplane responses were, were just beautiful. I we couldn't have asked for another thing if they uh, wanted us to give an opinion. Now, of course, if less sink rates desired, the aircraft can be flown at uh, an indicated airspeed of 240 knots for best L, L over D. And if necessary, excess altitude can be lost at constant airspeed by using the speed brakes. Now, we've had sink rates that have averaged anywhere from 250 feet a second. Some of them have been as high as 475 feet a second, all this prior to the landing flare, of course. But none of the pilots have considered these values to be a limiting factor in the pattern, in the landing pattern. Now, aside from the airspeed control, all the cues that the pilot, the, the pilot uses are external. Everything outside the airplane except checking his airspeed. So he chooses a landing point, and you select a flare point somewhere short of this, so that once you start the flare, lower the flaps in the landing gear, what energy you have remaining will carry you up to the touchdown point, the intended touchdown point. And we began keeping specific records on that. The flare altitude, uh, that's varied. We had uh, data on this, and it, it varied all over the place, and it didn't seem to make any difference. The pilot began to make his flare where he thought it was best. If it was down a little lower, it would be a little bit higher G flare. You could start a little bit higher and uh, maybe have an average G that was a little lower, but it didn't, didn't seem to make any difference. Now, a lot of the flights, as we began flying the airplane more often, 
it was significant to see the flare speeds increase. As we came around the pattern at 300 knots, perhaps on the last part of the final, the, the speed would increase a little bit. And of course, they asked us very pertinent uh, questions as to why we were doing this. And we weren't looking for better handling qualities at higher speed, uh, which were completely good throughout this region, but to gain more time after the flare to make the configuration changes. Because we had the clean airplane, and once you flared, then you would put the flaps down and the gear. So it would allow you more time to make the configuration changes, correct any trim, uh, trim changes, and then go ahead and complete the landing at some acceptable values of angle of attack and sink rate and proximity to the intended landing point. Okay, the majority of the landings have been accomplished with vertical velocities of less than five feet a second and at angles of attack between six and eight degrees. Ground effect, a ground effect pardon me, has not been a significant factor in the pilot's analysis of the landing. We had a block of 20 landings that we kept a specific look at, and they've done this on a continuing basis, and which we measured uh, our dispersion from an intended touchdown point. So here we are with a high sink rate, dead stick situation, under ideal conditions as far as weather and airfield is concerned, however. And we found that all the landings occurred within plus or minus 1,200 feet of that spot, a maximum dispersion of 1,200 feet. Of course, some were most of them were considerably closer. And of course, we thought, in our view, we thought this is quite a good average. And the slide out, as I indicated in the film, was five to 6,000 feet. And you could achieve a shorter distance by using full aft longitudinal control, retracting the flaps, you put the greatest load then on the skids, and then the, the full, uh, full deflection of the speed brake, brakes were at a drag. Now the inherent directional stability on the ground the directional characteristics on the ground quite good. But the pilot could use lateral control, differentially deflecting his, his tail, and put greater load on one skid than the other, and in this way achieve some measure of directional control. He swished the back end a little bit. So we were quite happy with it, and in fact with the uh, power off low lift drag airplane we didn't feel it was necessary. We concluded our, some of our comments on handling qualities. We feel they're an expression of pilot opinion, and of course we verify them in most cases with data, uh, data that we acquire, rather than attempt to compare them with some specifications. We weren't concerned with specifications. We were going to tell exactly what we felt about this, because there were no specs to look at. Okay, the main concern in expanding the flight envelope to design speed and altitude has been a detailed analysis of, of each forward step taken so it could be achieved safely. Of course, with our simulators and our engineers, we worked extremely well, I thought. So we went ahead with flights. We opened up the flight envelope to gather all the handling quality, quality data that we could so that we could formulate detailed specifications. might indicate that we could, we could ask if there have been any new regions in which we've flown that have indicated a significant change in handling quality specifications as they're known today. And the answer, as might be suspected from what I've said so far, is no. Now, in this sense, the performance of the X-15 can still be related with that of the, of the uh, supersonic fighter airplanes we have today, despite the uh, vast performance difference. The pilot still desires an excellent control system. He insists on the aircraft responding to his inputs at the, rate, the rates he desires, and is quite displeased with unda undamped oscillations about any axis. Now, certain differences can exist in what the pilot desires on the... Uh, when he's flying the X-15 compared with an operational fighter aircraft, for instance. When we're proceeding in the unexplored regions, the X-15 pilots 
prefer a heavy damping and roll and a high longitudinal damping. It's probably because it gives a feeling of security to have a solid airplane. But while in the fighter, excessive damping, in our view, might inhibit the ease with which a pilot can go ahead and track the target. We felt in the past the impression of what the pilot prefers has been translated into the design specifications regarding handling qualities. And from our experience in the X-15 program, we feel that it's going to be uh, much the same procedures as we go on to hypersonic and aerodynamic reentry vehicles, which I hope we do see in the future. I'd like to entertain your questions. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure you will agree that was an absolutely fascinating lecture. If you would like to ask questions, would you be kind enough to stand up and give your name and the organization with which you're associated? William Bedford. Uh, could you say a little more, please, about the choice of cross-sectional shape for the tail surfaces? It's very obvious that the vertical surfaces are quite different from the horizontal ones. Yes, well... Uh, this was predicted on, the, the shape that they used was predicted on what would give us the best possible uh, directional stability at the higher Mach numbers. Of course, we needed more area, and the, uh, I think the diamond shape uh, showed that it, uh, it had good characteristics at the higher Mach numbers, but of course they just split it right down the middle, and you had the wide, the wedge shape. And it was just a matter of what the... the uh, the qualities of this particular shape showed at the higher Mach numbers, shock wave formation and so forth, allowed it to retain more effective area where we would lose our directional stability than other forms. Now, it's a very inefficient tail at the lower speeds, but of course, again, we weren't interested in the low speeds. It didn't make any significant difference to us whether or not it was efficient or not. Is this, is this satisfactory? Therefore, why tailplane becoming more important at low speed have to be of a conventional cross-section? No, I, of course it's important at low speed, but uh, this particular shape, uh, the only thing I was trying to explain is why this particular shape. Are you talking about the vertical stabilizer now? Uh, sorry, I didn't finish my question yeah. well. I was asking such a marked difference between the vertical surfaces and the tailplane. The stabilizer, I'm sorry. Primarily, primarily because we were trying to retain a high level of directional stability. This then dictated uh, having as much surface or the surface we did have below the fuselage as well as above. And of course the shape too, the wedge shape, directional stability. We didn't anticipate any, or we didn't have any longitudinal stability problems that indicated some uh, something to do with the tailplane. We did have some, but it resulted in configuration changes throughout the fuselage. Could I ask um, Colonel White about the reaction controls? Was there any damping fed into the reaction controls, um, or were they just uh, virtually a straight stopcock applying the, uh, the liquid oxygen? Being an acceleration control, you have to put them on weight, put them on the other side and take them off. Was it just as simple as that? It started out exactly that. Uh, we. Uh went ahead and, and the pilot had to go ahead and apply his input and then of course he developed an acceleration and he had to stop it. 
Later on, we introduced uh, what we call a reaction augmentation system, and we provided damping in the, in the reaction control system as well. And uh, this did minimize the pilot's task. It made it extremely simple. Then the pilot uh, uh, could carry on like he was doing a, an extremely superb job. The, the oscillations were, were damped rather rapidly, and it was a matter of just positioning the airplane to the attitude you want, and it would hold it quite well. So it started out as the simpler thing, and then we refined it, and it worked very well. Could I just ask something yes. about the extent to which these were used? One envisages this airplane coming up at 30 or 40 degrees with two minutes to turn it over while keeping it level. Again, was it as easy as that might sound? Yes, almost so. <laughs> it was. The airplane's characteristics were quite good enough that it wasn't that much of a problem. Uh, our main areas of concern really were not in this phase, but when the engine was shut down and we were at some speed and altitude situation where we began to upset our airplane look at it, then perhaps we could run into interesting things. But the normal profile, I explained it, was almost as routine as I explained it. It was quite, quite good. Sir, Tar and R.A.F. May I ask a very silly question, sir? A fascinating lecture. May I ask, if you are traveling at speeds that you obviously done many, many times, and suddenly you get a complete flame, what do you do before you get the machine that you're in back on the ground? What do you, how do you start? What are your speeds? What is your last turn in speed? I'd be very appreciative if you'd be kind enough, kind enough First of all, if the engine stops unexpectedly, I have about 1.4 seconds of fright. And once that's overcome, once that's overcome, I would, uh, you make the, the normal things a pilot would do, try and determine why, and uh, attempt to relight the engine. We did have the capability with the engine to attempt other starts. If that uh, were unsatisfactory, then with the assist of the ground people and what knowledge I did already possess in the cockpit as time was going by, I immediately would integrate here in my computer uh, the landing area that I would have to find in the event that I'd be somewhere where I didn't have enough energy in the system to get home. And as you, can, as you start your glide down then, uh, you would go ahead and jettison the propellants. We have the capability of dumping overboard any fuels that remained on board. Necessarily so to reduce the uh, weight of the aircraft to that proper for the landing. And then it would be a matter of just following through with a uh, recovery at uh, a point other than the one originally intended. But we did have a proviso in our planning with a number of lake beds along the way <clears throat> that were spotted to allow us to make this emergency recovery if it was necessary. May I ask one question? What is your last turn in speed? To the final approach, uh, yeah. this uh, was anywhere in the order on an average of from 300 to 310 knots. Um, from the picture of the cockpit that you showed us, um, there were fairly conventional instruments. 
accepting the fact that modern aeroplanes call for a lot more use of instrument flying than visual, uh, would you like to elaborate on what instruments you carried and how much value they were to you? Okay, fine. We carried uh, every one of the instruments that were in that cockpit <clears throat> were of extreme value to us. If it wasn't, we threw it out, and we did this on a number of occasions. Of course, we had quite a few uh, instruments that dealt with the uh, systems in the airplane and uh, with the engine. And these were constantly monitored and used, especially up to the time of launch. Uh, we pressurized our propellant tanks with helium gas. We had, so there were source pressures. The, these gases had to be available. Once we pressurized the tanks, we had to monitor tank pressures. We had to monitor bearing temperatures, uh, hydraulic temperatures, hydraulic lines running adjacent to liquid oxygen tanks. There could be a, a low limit on uh, the hydraulic temperature prior to the time we started power units and got the hydraulic uh, pumps going to warm up the fluids. So all these things, thrust uh, chamber pressures, uh, igniter, uh, the first and second stage igniter chambers and then the main thrust chamber itself. And then beyond that, the uh, primary uh, instruments for flight was an, uh, an attitude indicator, complete complete freedom in all axes. It would not only give us direction, but of course our pitch and roll information as well. And uh, on this, uh, we could uh, pre-select a certain pitch angle and have an indicator move down so that we could fly it quite precisely rather than looking at a gross number on a, an, a, the ball itself. Uh, we also uh, used angle of attack. <clears throat> we had side slip information provided. Our inertial uh, velocity and altitude and rate of climb. We had a stopwatch. In the event we started to lose all these things, this is a very significant factor. Let's suppose we wanted to rotate at a certain time. We wanted to push over to zero G at a certain time. This was all predicated on performance. And with the engine running, as soon as the main propellant valves in the rocket engine opened up, the stopwatch started automatically. And we had cues based on time, just in numbers of seconds. So this became a primary cross-check instrument as well. In the landing pattern, we did have a set of pitot-static instruments so to give us airspeed and altitude. And of course, once we get down to the lower speeds and lower altitudes, these things became uh, available and reliable again, so we were able to use these. And as a corollary, what form of warning systems you employed? Uh, all right, we did have a, uh, a number of warning lights in the cockpit that uh, related mainly to uh, uh, engine operation. There were a number of critical uh, phases in the engine operation. We had these. Of course, this would provide you information only for the time that the engine was running or just prior to the start of an engine. And of course, we had a fire warning system. Uh, we'd have indications of stability augmentation failure. We'd have indications of oxygen failure, uh, something, of course, we were ex extremely interested in. Uh, beyond that, the, we didn't have an awful lot of warning indicators in the cockpit. Once the engine stopped operating, of course, you removed a lot of concern about source pressures and what have you, fuel systems, tank pressures. Uh, when that when that was gone, many of the systems and sources and the gases that you carried on board were of no concern to you. Could you just say a word how long it took you to in the 
I would, uh, you can only make an estimate here, it would depend on a particular situation, but I, we would normally like about six months to uh, get them fully acquainted with, with the vehicle. And now, here we have a known quantity now. I'm talking about a pilot, for instance, the, the lad that replaced me when I left uh, Edwards. And uh, we try to get him in at least that much time in advance. Then he can go back in and, and get to know everything there is to know about it. Because in that fast-moving situation, you can't open up the checklist to do any of these things. It has to be here, of course, with the assistance you get on the ground. And then there were a number of very detailed things we you had to do. Uh, you'd spend a great deal of time uh, with your engineers in the simulator and go through all this stuff, do all the performance, stability, and control studies, and become that, that conversant with the airplane. We had three of them. They were expensive, and uh, we loved them dearly, and we wanted to keep them going. Six months, I think, is reasonable. Uh, in view of the fact that uh, a conventional stick sometimes covers up a, a, an instrument on an instrument recovery, would you recommend that uh, all aircraft have the side stick? Certainly not. Uh, I think it depends on the individual situation. Uh, the control system here was superb. Uh, I've flown prototype airplanes. Uh, where the control system had uh, some serious deficiencies. Of course, they never were further developed, but we put a side stick in the airplane, and it was, uh, it was something to behold. Uh, it was a, you had a difficult time flying it. I think it would need control system changes. I think it depends on the requirement. It's what do you want to do with the airplane. Uh, don't arbitrarily put in a control stick just because it was good for us. But it was good for us. And for the various reasons that we wanted to use it, we were quite satisfied, the high acceleration forces and so forth. So uh, we were pleased with it. And, it. and it does have application in other areas, but uh, not necessarily so if, uh, if they don't need it. Dixon, uh, Ministry. I wonder if you could enlarge slightly on what sort of program you laid on for investigating the low speed handling qualities. Um, how did, and how did you conduct this program? What sort of precautions did you take before? Are you primarily concerned about the landing? Yeah. Did you just go to the buffet and you say that's it? No, we, uh, we went a little bit further into the buffet, as I recall, with the flaps down only, the gear up, because the gear was a one-shot system. You put the gear down and that was it. You couldn't retract it. There was no requirement to do that. So we. Uh, to uh, 180 knots, and that was the very limit. That's all. And the very first flight, uh, the airplane was dropped with Mr. Crossfield, North American, in the cockpit, launched, empty. Of course, we felt there was no requirement to be carrying the fuels and running the engine. We were concerned only with the fact as to whether or not it would fly and you could land it. And uh, he went ahead and slowed the airplane down, flaps down, checked it, flaps up, then flaps down, slowed it down to 180 knots, and just feeling the airplane out for those few minutes it took him to drop from 38,000 feet down to his landing. And of course, the studies that went on before that were obviously quite extensive in the, what the analytic and wind tunnel information would show you. Well, if the pilot, uh, in preparing himself for it, uh, 
That's right. Uh, we, uh, we, had, we tried some simulator devices on the landing situation, but this was rather difficult for us to come up with a decent simulator for the landing situation. So uh, there wasn't too much done in that area, although, although there were some efforts and we played around with some uh, schemes that really weren't too good. Uh, the pilot, of course, prepared by becoming completely familiar with low lift drag ratio, high sink rate, you know, situations, approaching at high speed. So he was prepared for that situation. Well, that's, that's pretty much it. Sharp risks, didn't we? Just wondering, really, how much complication was added by the introduction of the pilot the structural side of the problem. And uh, I wonder, on reflection, in future research, we have where we may have the problem with much more sophisticated purposes, whether or not the initial research aircraft. We, uh, as we went along in the program, we had a number of problems with systems and so forth, uh, many, many far more than I could possibly discuss tonight. But uh, uh, the pilot turned out to be about the most trouble-free component in the entire system, I might point out. But we went on further and actually did a very serious study, and we used the, uh, the Bomark missile as an example went into detail on its test program, went into detail on our test program, and we concluded that we, would have, we could have spent, uh, I forget how many more millions of dollars, to make it an unmanned program, and we would have lost all three vehicles far short of the time we would have accomplished our research objectives. I am violent in my opinions that this being a manned vehicle proved far more than it ever could unmanned. Because if we're going to have people fly these things, we would still have all these factors that we were looking for, the aeromedical studies, the piloting problems, and these things. It has to be. I, I won't entertain the question any further, sir, but thank you for it. <laughs> Uh, did you have any uh, uh, apparatus aboard the uh, aircraft to record aerodynamic noise in the cockpit? Presumably, with all your uh, helmets and other uh, apparatus, you couldn't hear anything yourself. And also, uh, you flew. Did you fly the airplane by instruments alone, or could you use the seat of your hand before? We have. We did have. Uh, uh, things to measure aerodynamic noise, but it wasn't in the cockpit. Actually, it was quite quiet in the cockpit. It was very pleasing, and we had a, a helmet that was uh, sufficiently good, so noise wasn't a problem. Of course, with the engine running for the short period of time, it was no problem. Once it shut off, it was extremely quiet. But uh, uh, we were looking for noise on the panels, or back on the tail of the airplane in various places here, as well as uh, some noise we were getting on the B-52 itself, so we looked at that. Uh, your second part of your question had to do with the, uh, just say a, a word or two, what was it? Oh, yes, yes, fine. Uh, during the initial part of the flight, uh, you could look out of the airplane, but you went right to the instruments and you rotated because the climb angles were so high you lost all visual reference to a horizon. So you were essentially flying the instruments. And you did fly the instruments through the entire flight. Now, when you got on top and got level again, uh, you could look out and pick up certain cues, and you could use visual cues for the entry. We, uh, we decided that there were certain uh, places we could put the uh, nose of the airplane on the horizon, 
or what looks like a horizon up there, to make an entry in the event you lost uh, pitch information, angle of attack information. And, uh, but you did use the instruments quite a great deal during the, uh, the entry maneuver as well. But you could do that with visual cues. And then the landing, the terminal part of the, once you arrived over the airfield, say from Mach 3 and 70,000 feet on down in that region, or once we had you know, looked in that region, why it was essentially just an eyeball operation. And the pilot did it all, all that way. Sydney, you had a fair degree of simulation facilities on the ground. I wonder how realistic it is, and um, what were their main use? Can you learn to fly the airplane from the simulator, or is it more learning techniques, routine tests? We did have quite a bit of simulation equipment. It proved to be quite good because we spent a lot of time looking at the stability and control. It wasn't a matter so much of learning to fly the airplane, uh, but you're putting the pilot closer to his natural environment where he has instruments mechanized and he can work on... Uh, there's a lot of cues that he will pick up and develop well for a particular flight by using the simulator. But we uh, looked at it a little bit more analytically than you know learning to fly the airplane. I think it was... It was extremely good for us to look at the stability and control situation, particularly to vary the stability we expected. Now, for the results, uh, they were quite favorable. We took a real hard look at any time flight test information came, out, came back and showed some variation from what we predicted. But fortunately, through the program, most of the predictions were reasonably good. They were certainly good enough to allow us to take each step forward as we went. We were quite fortunate that way. Although we always assumed the worst, but uh, and gave ourselves a lot more work, but I think it paid off. In, in the long the uh, landing gear, the skids themselves, of course the, uh, the uh, struts and so forth were permanent things that you would expect to last during the life of the airplane, uh, except for minor replacements perhaps, but the landing gear skids were replaced uh, about every five or six landings. The nose wheel tires, I'm not sure. And these were steel skids, too. They were steel because when they were, uh, the gear was retracted, the steel skids were actually the flush with the fuselage. Operation filter. Colonel White has mentioned the average vertical velocity during landing came out at about five feet per second. It's fairly obvious from the film that the vertical velocity of the nose wheel on that landing was considerably greater than that. To what extent did the nose wheel drop velocity reduce as the pilots got more experience? And how easy was it to control it? I, uh, I perhaps I went by it too quickly. I did try to indicate that you have no control whatsoever over the fall of the nose once the main skids touch the ground. As I said, in the usually we're used to being in a situation where the landing gear uh, is somewhere about the center of gravity of the airplane. And on landing, full aft stick or thereabouts will allow you to develop enough elevated power to hold the nose off. But with the skids being way back at the tail end, it becomes impossible. Uh, so the nose drops down very quickly. And as a matter of fact, because of this, it goes down and then will ease off in the second impact 
it changes the load on the main skids. And it actually was one of the weaker parts of the whole design, was the, uh, the design of the main landing gear. We did have problems there. As a matter of fact, on one landing, in order to see if we could reduce the loads on the main landing gear, they asked me if I would, when as soon as the main skids touched down, touched the ground, to go full forward on the stick to help drive that nose into the ground. And it uh, actually did result in the lightest landing loads on the main gear we had had up to that time. But you can't control it. It falls, and the first time you experience it, you push them back in, but after that, it <laughs> Well, thank you very much. It is very encouraging indeed tonight to see such good support for this lecture, and we hope this is a sign of what's in store for us in the future. Thank you all for coming tonight for this lecture. And finally, I would like to thank Bob White very much indeed for the time, trouble, and effort that he has taken in uh, coming all this way to give the lecture and giving it in such a fascinating and yet very modest way. He gives you the impression that you're fully relaxed in this aeroplane, whether you're at 300,000 feet plus or 4,000 miles an hour plus or doing a calm force landing at a mere 300 knots to achieve a touchdown within plus or minus 200 yards. I think this is the thing I find incredibly fascinating to think there's an aeroplane of this tremendously high performance which can be force landed consistently with this remarkable degree of accuracy. I'd like to congratulate you, Bob, very much indeed on the major part you played in this program and for the uh, excellent lecture you have delivered here tonight. And I would ask everyone to show their appreciation in the usual way.